You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everyone. I hope you're well and dealing with the new lockdown situation. It is disheartening, but the people in the Flemington public housing flats were certainly given special treatment with a hard lockdown served up by hundreds of police. We start the program with some of the voices from the block who spoke up on Zoom arranged by the Victorian Socialists this week. It is NADOC week this week and you might have noticed that the 3CR's annual Behind the Bars couldn't go to the prisons to speak to inmates this year because of COVID but technology has come to the rescue with broadcasts running 12 to 1 through the week by phone. So tune in. Today we hear a message from people in the Northern Territory on the 13th anniversary of the Northern Territory intervention and a more positive story from East Gippsland. Jacob Gretsch from 3CR's The Friday Rave has a word outside the American Consulate here in Melbourne on Julian Assange's 49th birthday, lest we forget. Kevin Healy rounds up the week with This Is The Week That Was and we finish up with a sobering word from Clinton Fernandez who was part of the Spirit of Eureka's webinar uh, investigating Australia's dependence on America especially with the increase in sabre-rattling in relation to China. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local Issues so I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Victorian Socialists ran a Zoom that gave voice to the residents in the Flemington public housing towers after the hard lockdown enforced by a mass police presence this week. Here is some of what they said. Who wants to go first? Anissa? Sure. (laughs) Um, Life, I mean, it wasn't normal because you already had so many restrictions um, and you were already in a pandemic. So it's not like we were carefree or anything. And um, I think most of us, 
in the buildings um, in an, and other, other buildings that aren't on lockdown can say that we've been quite cautious when entering the building, when using elevators, um, staircases. But of course, living in the Housing Commission buildings, you're in a situation where you can only do so much to protect yourself and others from catching the virus. So even if you are the most careful person, it does it still there's still a risk that you may catch the virus and pass it to somebody else. Um, but I mean, obviously, within the last month or two, people we've been less cautious with the ease of the restrictions um, under government orders. So I can't say that um, it's been the safest environment, which is you know essentially what sort of led to us being in the situation today. Um, sorry. Yeah, just to add to what Anissa said, um, it wasn't really good even before they had lo- lockdown. Um, there were really limited information on um, the whole coronavirus issues and the only information available was in English. Um, some um, information wasn't really enough, but it, was, it wasn't translated. And there are a lot of, most of the presidents on the towers are from refugee backgrounds, so they hardly um, read English. And um, the most effective way of communicating this information should have been translated audio message. But um, forget about audio. There wasn't even any translated written language. It was just in, in English. And um, there wasn't, the, in the beginning, they provided hand sanitizers near the lift, but that was never refilled. So it was just an empty box there. Um, it was really, um, nothing much has been done. Um, the place is really overcrowded, um, especially when the school opened and people were using the lift sometimes. Not, we In my building, the 12 color code, when we have three lifts, but usually only one or two words and um, people are running late school it's always overcrowded maintenance takes forever um, you ask for something to be fixed it takes three four weeks um, people they will obviously miss the school bus or kids are running late for school mothers are really frustrated so they will squeeze in whatever lift is working and it was really horrible so nothing significant has been done and um, just the hard lockdown was um, was a scapegoat really of um, the shortcoming of the government. It was really, it is still frustrating and heartbreaking, but um, the situation was already there and nothing has been done. Yeah, I pretty much agree with most of that. I could, we got, we got cut down to one elevator at the start of the pandemic, which I thought was ridiculous. They decided to commence, even though like the pandemic had been announced and lockdowns had been announced, they decided to commence maintenance on one of the lifts so for about three weeks there we were all squeezing in one elevator that was when they gave us our hand sanitizer mm. but there's a same experience in this building here in one one thirty. is that maybe once every two weeks it got refilled otherwise it was nothing there just people spreading germs by touching it really because they weren't getting anything out of it so um before the pandemic a very friendly supportive community vibe children playing in the corridors and happy. Of course, once the pandemic started, that all changed. Kids started to stay inside. They still played outside. But, of course, once this hard lockdown started, well, you know, these apartments are hardly designed for human habitation, really. Mm. Like Our apartment here has no natural light. We need to lights on 24-7, even in the middle of summer. Middle of the day, you still need the lights on. It's very little fresh air, so being cooped up inside of one of these without access to the outside grounds is not very good at all. No, it's, yeah. uh, it's been described. It's a 
it's a hell. So mm -hmm. you've been stuck in these places without being able to get outside. So, and I guess there was a, like that's what I mentioned before, and I've seen it going on that there has been a lot of pressure on just like trying to get people into the building to clean the corridors. Mm -hmm. Like it's been an ongoing campaign. Like where our apartment is outside the bin, we often have rubbish piled up in the corridor because the bin gets overloaded and full. It takes a long time to get people to get DHS to get cleaners in to. And I was speaking to one resident yesterday as well who's he's got some footage of it as well, how the cleaners don't really clean. They just sort of walk in, they sort of pat away at one window and then they move on because there's not enough cleaners and too many floors for them to get through. So, yeah, it's really not a clean that they get. And yeah, it's only since the pandemic we actually had a full scrubbing of the corridors, but only once. And again, in the last couple of days, but yeah. How did you find out that, that you were being locked down? Because we know that there was no formal warning given. Um, so yeah, how, how did you discover that you were going into home detention? Well, I was playing a video game. And I got a telephone call from my father who was watching the news and he told me what was going on. Right. And then I looked out the window and saw that the buildings were already been surrounded by police. And yeah, that was my, actually got formal notification the next day when they handed out our detention directives, I think they were called. But until then we had nothing. So that's what we got off the media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Saturday we were home. So I was I was not working last week. So um, we were all home, kids playing, and then my husband was on his phone, and then uh, on his phone, and then he said, "I think we on had lockdown." And I'm like, "What do you mean? Um, police everywhere. Uh, we can't get out of the building." And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't know, but it was already four o'clock, and that's when he found out. And we were getting ready for, we usually do our shopping Saturday afternoon. And I was like, oh, that's not possible. And then we looked through the window and we saw police cars and all that. We tried to rush to get some shopping and my husband was stopped. He was told we can't leave the building. We didn't even know. And that's the most frustrating part of the whole thing. Like people have got kids, we have got lives. We're not any different from any other Australian residents, any other Australian um, uh, suburbs. So you can't just as little kids, like you can't even do that to kids. Like you can't just, decide the last minute that, oh no, they need um, serious policing, especially in a community where there is no trust and um, not, government hasn't done any like really limited positive thing when it comes to policy and all that. Um, it was it was really horrible decision. And I, and I can't still really figure out how they came to that conclusion of all the places to um, residents from refugee and mig migrant background with a lot of trauma and um, a lot of issues happening, how they can just crop up and say, yeah, we need 500 police officers to lock these people up. So I don't know how they got to that decision, but it's the most horrible thing I've ever um, I've ever seen really um, since coming to this country. And um, I can't, some part of my head is still like, some part of, part of my brain is not still fully processing what happened. And it's still like a nightmare, I don't know. Um, so I was at a family friend's house. I was having a rather 
chilled Saturday afternoon and then I got a notification on Facebook from The Age saying they were doing a live stream. Um, it was the press conference with Dan Andrews. I'm like, okay, I have to watch this because not long before that they put a few suburbs on lockdown um, and I wanted to see what was next. And, you know, to my surprise, they were talking about, you know, our buildings going to total lockdown. And at this point, Flemington, North Melbourne and Kensington weren't even in any sort of lockdown to suddenly putting us in total lockdown. So I was sort of like, did I miss something? Did I did I miss a text? Did I miss an email? Did I miss a call? Um, and then I quickly learned that it wasn't just me. It was literally every single person in these buildings that had no idea um, despite the fact that people were commenting saying they had 24 hours notice, they knew two weeks ago. Um, I saw so many comments like that. I'm like, no, like literally we found out the same time that you did. Um, and yeah, it was crazy. So I called my mom. She didn't know either because um, she hadn't seen the press conference. She was panicking. So I rushed home. I did a quick shop. I got home around 8, 9 p.m. And then I haven't left since. And yeah, that's pretty much how it's gone down. Wow. And were there cops in front of the building when, when you got home? What was that yeah. like? Yeah, so at the time there were a few cops, um, not so much at the front of the building mm-hmm. on Alfred Street, which was weird. There were a lot at the back though, um, which isn't sort of like the regular entrance point. Um, but I was entering from the car park and they stopped us and asked who we were and what, what we're doing in the building. And um, I was with my friend at the time and he was helping me bring up some food. Um, and I said, well, I live here. And then they asked for his ID and he said, yeah, I'm just going to help her um, take up some food. And they're like, all right, no worries. When you come down, just show us your ID, um, like showing where you live and things like that. And then, um, yeah, they let him go. But, yeah, like it's, it's been nothing. Yeah. Come on. A checkpoint going into your own home, basically. Yeah. 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 I do remember thinking as uh, Amina uh, sort of says something that I'd been thinking at the time that like Saturday afternoon, this is when a lot of people do their shop. Or, or Sunday morning. Um, so I could imagine that there were a lot of families who were down to pretty minimal supplies when when that lockdown came in. Yeah. Um, okay. So if you're, uh, I guess my, my next sort of question is about, um, I guess, your experience of lockdown and what's been the most challenging parts of lockdown for you guys. Um, well, I'm happy to go first. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So we've got two kids here, so trying to keep everything positive for them and entertaining them has been probably the most challenging part. But then, of course, trying to do that on top of manage everything else as well with trying to work out what the hell is going on trying to get what we need because we were already pretty much we were quarantined even before we started with uh, my eldest Birkin being a close contact of a COVID-19 case who contracted who from Flemington Primary School. So that's another question as well, whether the schools that have, should have been reopened in the first bloody place. But, but other than that, trying to get simple things like my medication, which has finally arrived today after about 20 telephone calls. Wow. 20 telephone calls, many, many promises made. Mm-hmm. My pharmacist had made up the script and it was ready for collection. It was just a 15-minute drive, really. But still, it took, what, 52 hours to get these to me. So it sort of shows the general level of, uh, like, essential medication for glaucoma. 
I need to take his every day, otherwise I get damaged optic nerve. So, yeah, that's the sort of care that people, no, this is just one example, and I'm sure there are people with more pressing chronic illnesses than I have in the buildings who have had similar experiences, so, yeah. So sorry, that just should never have happened. I remember you were talking to me when you ordered that. It was like Sunday lunchtime or something yeah, that you exactly. asked for it. Yeah. Um, Amina? Yeah, um, for me, the really um, the hardest part was the psychological part. I still, I'm still, I'm still really finding it hard to accept that it actually happened um, because um, I, and I also believe a lot of people um, from a similar background have got the same experiences in Australia. Like we are constantly reminded on the street, wherever we go, that we are different, that uh, we don't belong, that um, we like we're not seen regardless of how many, like if for example, my kids were born here, but they will always be called Somali refugee. They will never be called Australian. If something like if they were, for example, if the media or someone has to describe them, they will, that refugee part will always be with them regardless of how long they have been in Australia because of where they're from. And then when the had lockdown came, it was another, it was just a reminder of how I've always, felt and how like we've been treated in, here in Australia that we are different so even with the coronavirus how we're being treated is completely different from how the other Australian suburbs are, are, are because we all know that most of the residents here in the towns are from refugee background called background so um and it's it was really like I always brush it off like when it happens somewhere like outside but when it when that came from the government that okay these people need to be treated like they are using the the, um, the spirit of the virus as a scapegoat but it comes down to uh, being treated as people who cannot think for themselves people who don't have what it takes to take care of themselves to self-isolate we have been following the rules we have been doing everything yes there are a lot of elderly a lot of vulnerable people but that that does not mean that we we have to be treated different to other Australian um, people. So it was a reminder of what always happens, like our day-to-day -day life, that regardless of how long you stay here, as long as you identify um, a certain people, you will, always be, you will always be seen as different and will be treated different, whether it's government or whatever it is. So it, it was for me, dealing with that psychologically was extremely hard. And then trying, like my oldest is 10, He's really, really curious boy. He asks a lot of questions and um, explaining what's happening to the kids with like in an objective way without telling them actually the actual truth, like why things were happening the way it was. I felt it and everybody who is in this house knows why things have been completely different. Okay, we have been in hard lockdown and then no essentials, nothing, no food for 24 hours and the first they provided was expired some as early as um some as like beginning of the year some last year and um a lot of the elderly residents who they claim that they are protecting and they're doing this in their best interest have been given expired food so if you're trying to protect them from corona what would happen to the elderly person if they consume really expired food food that has been expired for months even a year like where is your priority are you really protecting trying to protect us or 
you are reminding us that we are different and we don't have what it takes to take care of ourselves. We need other people to think for us. So it was, it was the psychological part that really, really hurt me a lot and still stays with me. It was the psychological part. And I think it will take a very long time to kind of come back from that. Thank you. Thanks so much for, for sharing that. I mean, I can't imagine how traumatising this is, especially given that so many residents have memories of authoritarian regimes, have memories of being detained by the Australian government for, for many of them. Um, and, yeah, the, the kind of real in-your-face reminder uh, that this is of, of racism in this country. I'm really extremely sorry that, that, that you're going through that. Um, Anissa, did you want to comment on what you found difficult? Um, so today, I think most people can sort of agree with this, um, you know, apart from all of the other aspects as far as I'll be able to, you know, get some fresh air or exercise or go to work or just live a normal life. The main problem that a lot of us have is the lack of communication that there was. I think a lot of us would have been a lot more accepting and understanding of the situation. We understand the need for this type of lockdown, we know how, you know, fast and wide this sort of virus can spread in these in these buildings, but there was no communication, there was no collaboration with our community leaders. Um, and, you know, after the fact of being put in lockdown, there was nothing after that as well. Um, so I feel like that lack of communication has really made this situation you know, a thousand times worse, whereas had we been properly taken care of and had they done the right thing from the beginning, it wouldn't be the way it is now and we wouldn't be speaking out about this. Thank you. Yeah, like lots of residents have shared that to understand the need for, for public health measures, um, but to have done it with no discussion, no, yeah, it's just totally abhorrent and didn't happen to anyone else, to any, anyone else who was put under lockdown. Yeah. Um, oh, did you have more? Um, also, one other thing that was, I think, was really frustrating was that, you know, today it's the end of day, day three slash four. And, you know, on top of the lack of communication, the governments, you know, in this building, at least in 33 Alfred Street, we're only now receiving all the food from the government and all the stuff they said they had provided, you know, two, three days ago. Um, but, you know, while, you know, they were sort of in... Uh, arranging to have that delivered to us, to us, community members are the ones that stepped up and volunteers. So it's just crazy to me that these the government knew that they were going to put us in lockdown, but they had no steps put in place to make sure that everything went smoothly. Instead, community members and other um, Victorians or other people across the country are the ones that actually got together and made things happen so that we could have the supplies and all the food and everything that we needed during this lockdown. So I think that was another really big letdown but um, I think, yeah, definitely a lot of us are really grateful to the community and um, everybody else that um, contributed and helped us through this time. Mm, yeah, so um, as you may know, most of the um, residents in these towers are from refugee backgrounds, um, most of them. And um, these people have been through a lot. They've been through um, trauma, like real trauma. And um, for them, the presence of government, whether police or any other um, armed forces represents for them beginning of something bad to come, beginning of, um, of, of 
losing loved ones, um, displacement, a lot of other horrible things to come. Um, these people have experience of um, losing loved ones to police officers, um, not trusting governments, not speaking the language, not providing um, translated audio. Like I've seen some translated information on some web websites, but if the person doesn't read, that's not helpful. They need translated audio message, especially for the elderly, um, for them to understand what's happening. Like, for example, my mom doesn't live where close to Flemington. She calls me three times a day at least. And the only thing she keeps asking me is if the police is still there. Uh, are the police still there? Um, do they look scary? Are you okay? Um, what's happening? Because for these older people uh, from refugee background, um, police officers, heavily armed government officials represent the beginning of something horrible to come. It's a reminder of how they left their countries. It's a reminder of how they came here, the reasons that led them to flee what they've been uh, familiar with, their country, their families, their friends, coming to a completely different place. And then imagine someone from um, such background with horrible trauma history coming down the stairs and then seeing 500 police officers, let's say even 10 or whatever, heavily and flashing lights surrounding the whole buildings no information, they can't communicate, they can't ask what's happening. And mental health is just as important as physical health. Yes, you are you are saying um, that you are working hard to make sure that the coronavirus does not spread and these people are in safe place, yes. But what, if, what about their mental health? What's gonna happen to them? What if they jump from the windows of these tall buildings? Because for them, danger is coming. They might go back, flashback to how things, um, what happened before they left their countries. Maybe in their head, they go back to this traumatic history and trying to escape what's happening. Like, you can't just say, okay, I'm protecting these people, but again, re-traumatizing them. You're taking back straight to things that, that they're trying to forget. They have maybe lost their husbands, wives, sons, daughters to police officers. You can't just do that. You cannot treat people as if their mental health doesn't matter especially for people from refugee background. The presence of police officers is always the beginning of something terrible to come. And um, I'm, I'm really, really, really disappointed that the government has not, um, has not taken that into account and um, they could have handled it way better. Um, and I am really, um, I, I, I don't even have really exact word to describe how this whole situation um, for um, people for, from um, refugee background. Um, an example is my mom doesn't live here, but she's worried, calling me all the time, asking about the policy that's still there. Um, yeah, so for lack of better words, it's, I, it's just horrible. I, I, I don't even know how, how to describe, but, um, and also in terms of, um, the prejudice and uh, labeling. Yes, absolutely. As I said, we have been labeled as people who are incompetent, who cannot um, take care of themselves, who cannot think for themselves. We have been doing the social distancing. We have been, without government or anyone helping us, we have been doing um, translation, like 
translating a lot of documents, talking to, um, I speak Somali, talking to all the um, elderly Somali people I see, whether it, they are from this building or other buildings, I've already been doing my part and everybody I know has been doing an amazing job to educate people, to make sure that the information is passed on. But again, for the government to dismiss everything that has been happening, people have been doing like, these people are resilient. They have lived through traumatic events that people cannot even comprehend. They know how to take care of themselves. They are really resilient people. But again, um, for them to be doubted, to be treated as people who cannot think for themselves and need had lockdown, to be told what to do and all that shows um, the government's perception and really um, what they think of us. We're not animals. We're not any less intelligent or any less um, sophisticated as any other Australian. Just because we look different doesn't mean we are different when it comes to the seriousness of this matter. And yeah, all we need is respect and people to see us as people. This is Stephen Pigram from Up Broomway. Yaru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. No matter what we do, it's always been, oh, they're Aboriginal, they must have, must have done something wrong. And we're tired of it. But we want to move forward and start telling our kids to be proud of who they are. We want them to go back to country and let their old people teach them their culture. A lot of money ever spent on Yundamu was more than $7 million to build a new police station. We've got more police than ever and more people in jail than ever. The welfare mob keep taking children away. Don't respect our extended families. White bosses, don't respect our elders. Our children see this and also lose respect in us. Everything is done in English. We have no say in running our own lives on our own land. It is like we are under occupation by a foreign power. We want our local council back. We want our houses back. We want police to respect us and stop wearing guns. Black lives do matter because we need a roof over our heads. We need to keep our kids out of jail. We need to keep our men and women safe from family and domestic violence. You know, we need to make sure they're uh, proper food security for our people in remote communities and we need to close the gap on our health and our life expectancy. Let's Palanda and Yoruba make a pathway where we both walk together alongside. Not assimilate it. Do not manipulate us to be under your system of law. We need apology. My people and I need apology right around the Northern Territory, right around Australia. Is this what we deserve? Is this what we deserve?
what we deserve All I'm asking, Lord Is this what we deserve We've been here since time began Our ancestors' footprints Are buried in the sand We are but caretakers of this ancient land But you still don't understand Is this what we deserve? Is this what we deserve? What we deserve Can you tell me now Is this what we deserve Your laws are so unjustified Our basic human rights Have been denied With excuses like your hands are tied you go on committing genocide Is this what we deserve? Is this what we deserve? What we deserve Can you tell me now Is this what we
Hi, um, my name's Maya Newell and I made a film called Gaby Baby and recently a film called In My Blood It Runs. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. East Gippsland Dispatch. Voices and stories of community and resilience from East Gippsland. Hello, this is Fiona. Welcome to another East Gippsland Dispatch. Today we have an interview with Ray Thomas. Ray Thomas is a Gunai Kurnai artist and cultural business development manager at Glarwak, which is the Gunai Kurnai Land and Water Aboriginal Corporation at Forest Tech in Kalimna East in East Gippsland. Catherine Van Wilgenberg has interviewed him. She was a float artist in residence in Lake Tyres in East Gippsland and she was interviewing creative entrepreneurs who are transitioning um, into a new economy for East Gippsland. Ray established the Bush Cafe at Forest Tech at Kalimna with a professional chef and he also created 10 studios for Aboriginal artists to work and exhibit their work in the on-site Glarwak Gallery. Catherine interviewed Ray during a morning at the cafe, so you can hear the coffee machines and the cafe chat in the background. He shares the Gunai Kurnai's community's cultural goals for the Forest Tech Auditorium, the monthly question and answer sessions, and a library of Aboriginal cultural resources to share with local Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people so that we can learn about the region's cultural heritage. There will be another interview with Ray Thomas from Glarwak, about how Indigenous knowledge can permeate into non-Indigenous connection to the land in our backyards, in the regions and in the urban areas. Many thanks for listening. Last time we met Ray, you spoke about developing 10 artist studios here. How's it going? We've got the space there. Been working on getting the, the cafe up and running, the Bush Cafe. That was part of my first project, what I worked oh, on wow. here with, with, the, with my line manager at the time. The Bush Cafe is now up and operational. We've got staff in there, uh, Indigenous chef, kitchen hands. We're getting visitors through the place. Enough? It, oh, it fluctuates, fluctuates, of course. So still working on signage. We're out on the, dealing with Vic Roads, people in Melbourne, the powers that be. That's a process. And just a little bit of signage around town locally. So the gallery, we've got artwork up on the walls. Most of it is from the Glarwak collection, which they've purchased off and supporting artists locally and regionally. The idea of the artist studio space is still there on the table. Because of this space also, you know, to, to run workshops, we, we've got that space to do that sort of thing. That's, that's where we are at the moment. Would people rent them, like, have you lease them? Are they invited? Do they have a, a contract? Like, how would you work it economically? It's just a, it's a studio space for community. So it was uh, just, just to have community people here in this space off the free of charge. The idea in that picture is that draw card for tourism to the area, to the region, to, to Glarwak, to the Bush Cafe Gallery. So we've got a stable of artists at work. Tourists come and have a nice meal and then go down and meet with an artist and you know, watch them at work and maybe purchase a nice piece of art to take away. That's, that's the concept. Because of the, the space here also, we've got um, plenty of car park space and of course you know, big big space here for um, tourist buses to call in. You know. 
So are you working in conjunction with Ents and tourist, Tourism uh, for, with East Gippsland No, that's, that's all stuff in, in progress. Do you see the studios are painters? Do you see them in other art forms like performances, sculptors? people who are really asking difficult questions, provocations? That includes all art forms, so yeah, though we're developing at the back here, big open amphitheatre space this is going to be at the back of the cafe here where we're sitting. We've got a, a, a sheltered roof along this area here, along the back of the cafe and it will go that way, sort of shaped like a boomerang. We have a seating area there and a small stage set up down the bottom there and have performances out here. We'll when we do our events throughout the year, NAIDOC week and Reconciliation week, different ceremony events. And my vision for the for the Bush Cafe has always been that this place can be operating possibly you know, seven days a week. Say so Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, you could have like an open mic area, uh, some local um, talent, you know, singer, uh, songwriters, whatever, showcasing local talent. Um, it doesn't have to be indigenous in, in my books because uh, there's no discrimination in in the art world. So you want to develop like a cultural centre here? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's become the cultural the cultural hub. Oh. What in your studios, what about filmmakers and digital people, you know, gamers, people who are develop, anima, animators or...? Yeah, that, that'd be great. Um, that, that's stuff I'd be interested in myself, actually, yeah. that sort of thing. Lots of people now, non-Indigenous people, are really um, convinced that it's Indigenous knowledge that... That, that we need to accept, which has been refused, which has been denied, but because of the bushfires and the the uh, impact of the bushfires, which is changing everything, we, we non-Indigenous people, we have to change our beliefs, our attitudes about the land. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. The imprisonment of Julian Assange in an English prison for the exposing of American war crimes on the instigation of the Americans who want to extradite him so they can charge him in the US with charges against their national interests is a disturbing and dangerous precedence. Jacob Gretsch and others mark Julian's 49th birthday on July the 4th outside the American consulate in Melbourne. Okay, well here we are at the US consulate in beautiful downtown rainy St Kilda Road in Melbourne to, well, celebrate is not the word, Mark, I guess is the right word, Mark Julian Assange's 49th birthday. Um, ironically, on a day when nobody is at the, at the consulate because they're celebrating the 4th of July, what they call their Independence Day. And it's strange that while they're celebrating an Independence Day, they're exerting pressure on so many other countries around the world. Pressure on the British justice system to keep Julian locked up in Belmarsh prison. And we know, we know now, thanks to the leaked emails, that from the start, the US Department of Justice has been putting pressure on both the Swedish Department of Justice and the British Department of Justice to keep Julian inside. When they were talking about a re releasing him a few years ago, or rather not releasing him, but dropping the warrant so that he could leave the embassy, the response from the US handler was, don't go soft on us now. 
This is about the United States persecuting an Australian citizen, putting pressure on the Australian government to do nothing, to sit on its hands while they keep an Australian citizen locked up in a cell built for terrorists when he has not been charged with a crime. He has broken no Australian law. He has broken no British law. Whether he has broken American laws is possibly a moot point. But if he did break the law, he did not break them while he was in the United States, nor is he an American citizen. The American government, the US government, is saying by this indictment that they have the right to apply their laws on any citizen in any country, regardless of where the alleged crimes occurred. Now that would be akin to some Middle Eastern governments wanting to extradite me for having a whiskey last night. Just because you, you do something which is illegal in one country, it does not follow under law that you can be tried by that country in any country regardless of your citizenship. The Australian government, as I say, is sitting on its hands. This is the real seat of power here in Melbourne and up in Canberra at One Perth Place at Yarralubla. Scott Morrison in announcing his $270 billion defence expenditure on Wednesday, which is bullshit, of course. Every cent of that $270 billion has already been allocated, was allocated as a result of the 2016 White Paper. We've known about the long-distance anti-ship missiles. We've known about the space program. We've known about the 251 remote weapon systems that they picked up from electro-optic systems in Queanbeyan today, ironically enough, a day before a federal by-election in that electorate, Ida Monero. What Morrison is doing is not spending any extra money, and we should be grateful for that, but he's again, on behalf of the United States and on behalf of Western Capital, rattling the sabre and beating the war drum about China. He's doing this because somebody needs to, because capital requires it, because American investment requires it. And capital knows that America won't do it. We can't afford a confrontation between China and the United States. So they're using the American proxy, their dog in the Pacific. That's what we are today. And they've been doing this for a while. The list of Australian involvement in American war crimes is a long, long list indeed. And it is because of these war crimes, or rather because of exposing the war crimes, that Julian Assange is currently held in prison. Julian Assange and WikiLeaks leaked the documents showing that American troops with Australian complicity, committed war crimes in the Middle East, in the suburb of New Baghdad in particular, 
where the collateral murder video took place. For that, that, the releasing of that video was the subject of the initial indictment against Julian and against WikiLeaks. While the soldiers who shot the unarmed civilians, who riddled a car they knew was full of children, they admitted they knew was full of children, who shot the first responders, have not been charged, have not been questioned, have suffered absolutely no comeback for those illegal murders. Yet the person who exposed the illegality is now in a terrorist cell. And we have the same thing happening here in Australia. We got Witness K at Bernard Colliery, currently facing jail terms for exposing Australian crimes in East Timor, because that's what it was. Built into the conference room and bugging it and treating it as aid is a crime. But as I say, that's what the initial indictment... The initial indictment was about the collateral murder video. But just the other day, the United States Department of Justice, and I realise that's almost an oxymoron, United States Department of Justice, has released a second, a third indictment what they're calling a superseding indictment, which doesn't add any new charges on Julian, but extends the inquiry, where initially it was talking about March 2010, the time of the collateral murder video. They've now extended that. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true That if all the people work collectively There just might be something we can do And everything can change A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener When the blocks were blocked Respectable residents in a huge apartment block in Turak Looked out their windows to see 500 <coughs> oh, sorry, coppers surrounding them The first they knew they were in detention no, no, don't panic all you Turak 3CR listeners out there, only joking. No, those social necessities for the common good are for the undeserving non-respectable. The blocks were blocked and people going out of their blocks, public housing high-rise tenants placed in detention thanks to the neoliberal super-efficiency of contracting out government services, which ensured COVID-19 wasn't contained within quarantine hotels the Hotel Ruby Princess, so to speak. Blocked blocks, a high-rise population, many of whom have fled state oppression, looking out the windows and seeing 500 or so coppers surrounding them, invading the place. What better way to give them the news? You're in detention. Real sensitivity, enjoying the protection of those coppers moonlighting as screws, thanks to someone or someones obviously having a screw loose in deciding it was smart economics to turn private security thugs loose in the quarantine hotels. But the government must be congratulated on handling the logistical nightmare so smoothly, so efficiently, that by Thursday as many as eight families were able to have a meal.
the residents must have wished the government had contracted out their security to the super-efficient private sector, because then they could come and go as they wish and be propositioned and sexually harassed. Okay, there is a problem that needed addressing, but we would have thought they could have addressed it a a bit better than they did. A a bit of consultation, pre-warning, cultural awareness might not have gone astray, but then within days, we were all locked down. But unlike the public housing tenants, at least we're allowed to walk out the door with only 8 to 9% chance of being shot on sight, as Melbourne is ringed by not just, like you know, coppers, but train killers as well, a feeling of real security. And the border closure with New South Wales saw our old mate Innes Will Cost, the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, come to our defence with sensible logic. The closure will pull the rug out from under any recovery and is chaos in the making, he saged. The border closure puts up a Berlin Wall between our two biggest states, which represent more than half the national economy, and cuts in two our country's major economic artery. It is a sledgehammer. Uh, but in us, it's about the pandemic, the human artery, not the economic artery. I'm talking about the pandemic, the economic pandemic. Look, we admitted, and our government's admitted, that when we relax the lockdown and distancing and measures that have kept the other less important pandemic under control, flattened the curve, there would be a second wave of deaths and other non-economic consequences. So people can't say they weren't warned. Would you rather die in an economy bashed by a sledgehammer under the Berlin Wall, or would you rather die in a profitable, thriving economy? Well, that's a no-brainer, and speaking of no-brains, Innes was asked by an ABC interviewer, totally unfairly, whether he was putting the economy ahead of public health. As if. It's a matter of balance, he said. We must balance those illnesses against the damage they cause to the economy. That put the interviewer in his place. We all recall how AMP on the customers emerged so triumphantly from the Her Most Gracious Majesty Finance Sector Royal Commission, praised for such selfless practices as being kind enough to continue to service and charge the dead, among many examples of impeccable ethics. And thus it's comforting to know it continues its praiseworthy practices, like a Putting a bloke called Bo Pahari, B-O-E-P-A-H-A-R-I, real name, because until the past week or so we'd never heard of him, Bo as supremo of AMP on the customer's capital, ignoring little peccadillos like the company forking out, paying up to settle a sexual harassment claim by a woman, quote, subordinate of Bo, which someone reasonably complained was more than a little peccadillo and suggested should have disqualified him automatically from getting the top job. As the controversy raged on, the AMP on the customer capital chair, John Fraser, showed AMP on the customer has retained the very morals that saw it so lauded by the Royal Commission. Bo was promoted, he said, because he made a lot of money for the company. There! 
case closed. The board was unanimous in appointing him because of his track record. John, a former head of the Federal Treasury, didn't clarify which track record, sexual harassment or making a lot of money for the company. So we'll just have to speculate. But isn't it comforting to know AMP on the customers retains its high moral standards? Speaking of, an ABC announcer promoting what was going to be on his program said, we'll be looking at whether we could have a fairer economy. Sorry I missed the program because now I've got no idea. Could we have a fairer economy? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Could we have a fairer economy? How long have we got? We need a fair bit of time to think that one through. Interesting to know how John and Bo and the board at AMP on the customers would answer that dilemma. It's the sort of problem we need people like Innes Wilcox, the workers, to answer for us because he's an expert on these things. I know this will sound selfish, but how I hope U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor's electoral fortunes take a turn for the better because we can't afford to lose this satirist dream. Come on, it's only another four years of iconoclasm, and let's not forget the alternative is the boredom of a Joe Biden by capital. So apart from the minor danger of World War III, we could watch him do even more damage. And imagine his explanation of why the Constitution must be amended to abolish the pesky two-term limitation. On iconoclasm, this week he denounced those calling for racist monuments to be removed or just removing them anyway. He was defending the US of way of life from the angry mob, he told his screaming acolytes. We are now in the process of defeating the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters. And we'd been fooled into believing the Black Lives Matter movement was about Black Lives Matter, not, as the President of the United States now exposes, as a Marxist, anarchist, agitating bunch of radical left looters. To honor real Americans, responsible anti-Marxist, anti-anarchist, anti-agitating, anti-radical left looting true Americans, he will build a national garden of American heroes, statues of the greatest Americans who have ever lived in a vast outdoor park. Greatest ever, ever. Any idea he might have in mind as the centerpiece of greatest Americans ever, ever? Wonder if he would see the Florida retired Donald supporter yelling white power at Marxist, anarchist, agitator, radical left looter supporters, which he tweeted twice as, as an American hero, or just a very wise supporter of the greatest American hero ever, ever. No, no, we can't afford to lose him. That, that's just one day out of seven. We could fill this segment every week with his latest idiocies. Another bunch we should get rid of are these university researchers who research areas that are none of their business, like their overseas students. The bloody irresponsible Uni of New South Wales and Uni of Technology surveyed, surveyed 2,700 students and found, surprise, surprise, three in four were being underpaid in their student jobs, one in four earning less than half the minimum wage, and exploitation is likely to worsen during the economic recovery, whenever that will be. Despite the introduction of much higher fines and greater focus from the workplace watchdog, it is still business as usual, they reported, and a new strategy needs to be considered. 
Well, the first new strategy I'd consider is these researchers' right to interfere in the business of business. Okay, they might not be well paid, to put it finely, but at least they have a job. Do the well-paid researchers want their students to starve? And this, as the government points, uh, wants business to to fund tertiary research. What, What a disincentive. About 26% of respondents were paid all of $12 an hour, which one professor described as egregiously underpaid. But what the report fails to point out, I suspect for lefty commie reasons, is that the 75% exploitation rate is 100% inadvertent. Finally, back to where we started. What a Machiavellian intervention by the evil unions to provide food, including culturally appropriate food, for the public housing detainees just to make themselves look good on the specious grounds that the government is stuffing it up. Their evil is bottomless, isn't it? Good morning. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. You're on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. You're with Annie. Clinton Fernandez, author of An Island Off Asia, presents an erudite and incredibly illuminating analysis of Australia's connection to America and why we are America's deputy sheriff in the region. At the Bloomberg Professional Terminal. And I want to acknowledge here that this is by no means a complete uh, study uh, because it doesn't take into account things like private equity uh, or other privately held companies. But in the publicly traded realm, we see here that the dark green section here is where American-based investors, for the most part, they outnumber the percentage of Australian-based investors. So the Commonwealth Bank of Australia is uh, only about 22% Australian-owned. Something like BHP Billiton is less than 10% Australian-owned. It's about 70% American-owned. If you look at the big banks, Westpac, National Australian Bank, ANZ Bank, Woolies, Wes Farmers, Macquarie Group, Rio Tinto, Woodside Petroleum, Goodman Group, Centre Group, Brambles, Westfield, Newcrest Mining. These data, uh, these, uh, the data informing that slide comes from uh, a May 2019 uh, report, uh, which I, well, I did through the Bloomberg Professional Terminal. I looked at it recently. Uh, the proportion of U.S. investment has actually increased in Australia during the coronavirus crisis. Uh, and therefore, I haven't brought those, uh, that data in because I don't want to skew um, the argument in my favor uh, at an uh, unusual time. This is the normal pattern, however, is that um, 16, approximately 16 of the top 20 companies in our stock exchange are actually owned by American-based investors. Now, if you own the equity in a company you're responsible for and you have control over the kinds of policies, priorities, uh, 
that the, the company is responsible for. And so American-based investors speak with a very loud voice uh, in the Australian Stock Exchange. This fact is not always known. Now, people might object to the term imperialism or sub-imperialism when I'm referring to Australian policy. And so I just want to clarify the term. Uh, there are all kinds of doctrinal ways of, uh, of, of, of discussing it, and there are entire books and PhD theses on exactly what imperialism is. I just prefer a, a much more simple, even if it's simplistic definition, which is that it's just the control, indirect or direct, of one group over some other group, you know, nation over another nation. The big difference between modern control, hegemony or imperialism, with previous imperialist uh, or previous empires is, as you see on the slide, if Alexander the Great were in Afghanistan today, he wouldn't be surprised at all by Taliban tactics or by Western tactics. I mean, he'd be very surprised by drones and uh, satellites and stuff like that, but certainly not when it comes to patrolling. But his strategy was you know, to marry his generals to Afghan princesses. Uh, the Australian Defence Force, of course, can't, can't, can't adopt such a strategy. Uh, but the point was that they, the, the peasants would continue to produce the same foodstuffs and handicrafts in the same way. It didn't transform the society that you were conquering. Yes. It, it's just that the, the direction in which uh, that surplus went uh, was different. It went to a foreign ruling group instead of a domestic ruling group uh, because it involved exploitation, but no real economic and social changes. But because capitalism is a dynamic system, then capitalist imperialism transforms the conquered territories because of the imperial center's technical power and its economic power and its political power. It utterly transforms uh, the conquered territories. And to give you a sense of uh, how this works, uh, if you look at Australia as a sub-imperial power, um, Australia transferred wealth from its, uh, I'm sorry, Britain transferred wealth uh, from its conquered territories uh, to the settled colonies uh, where British settlers had, had gone, and they supported industrial growth in the center. So from uh, 1765 to 1914, uh, Britain drained uh, about 9.2 trillion pounds in today's money uh, uh, from India. That's 45 trillion US dollars. Um, and 45% of the British foreign investment, which was, which came out of those uh, those colonies, uh, flowed to North America, uh, principally Canada um, and Australia and New Zealand. The reason Bangladesh is poor, in a sense, is that Australia is rich, and vice versa. Uh, the largest recipients of British foreign investments um, in the 1870s and 1880s uh, were the Australian colonies, the six colonies. And so one can't actually say that Australia suffered as a result of being a sub-imperial power. In, in its, it, doesn't, it is not convincing at all to say that Australia was exploited by the British or that uh, uh, in some way uh, Australia uh, did not benefit from British imperialism. In fact, it was a favoured uh, colony and was the junior partner of the British Empire. And so this was understood by leaders, intellectuals, and so on at the time, the word empire has now uh, gone out of fashion. Uh, there's all kinds of objections to, to that term, uh, but people were more honest uh, at, at that time. And so Alfred Deakin uh, says, 
that India was won by the sword, is still held by the sword and can only be retained by the sword. And it was an honest statement. And I'm not, I'm referring here to India simply because that's where uh, the most work has been done by Indian economists. Uh, But there is plenty of other work that has been and is being done in the other colonies. And so the grain of wealth away from uh, those colonies into the settled colonies is the entire basis of the wealth of those settled colonies. And the same thing might be said of, say, you know, France um, and other, other uh, imperial powers. Now, it's very interesting to, to look at the way in which liberal intellectuals supported empire. They genuinely believed it was a force for good because belief systems are contingent on the goals desired. If you want to see the empire, then you come up with, you construct a system of beliefs that provides you with the intellectual support. So here is John Stuart Mill, in many ways an admirable figure, uh, you know, an early feminist and uh, known today for his defense of free speech and other uh, core tenets of liberalism. And here he says, Britain is not a selfish imperial power. It acts in the service of other countries, not itself. It's just that these barbarians are forcing it to bear the costs of war. But it still shares its fruits with the whole human, human race. And such a country is a novelty in the world, so much so that people are unable to believe it when they see it. That's John Stuart Mill, great intellectual, genuinely important figure. If you replace Britain with USA or France or China, and you look at their intellectuals defending their own societies, you're going to find very similar justifications, very, very similar justifications. John Stuart Mill was writing in 1859, which is immediately after the crushing of the Indian mutiny slash rebellion. And as Britain was getting ready to continue to push more and more opium into China, Indian opium, I would add, uh, there are Indian families that got very rich on the basis of um, Indian opium that went to China. And so it doesn't make sense to to say that Australia somehow suffered when all this was going on. We were not exploited when this was happening. And the, the phrase imperium in imperial was used by one of the key thinkers uh, of uh, Australian foreign policy on the eve of the First World War. Fred Eggleston says that nations like people have often to face a great crisis before their raison d'etre becomes revealed to the world. And so he says that this imperium, this empire within a bigger empire has been established by our Australian possessions in the Pacific. So the Southwest Pacific is the place where we have our own little empire where we can push other countries around, like say Papua New Guinea, uh, uh, Solomon Islands, uh, Vanuatu, uh, and of course, more recently, um, Timor-Leste with espionage and bullying and so on. But you'll find, once again, the same justifications, that it's really external threats that are forcing countries uh, to to behave, uh, that are forcing us to behave in such a way, uh, but really our intentions are very benign. And I would add, Chinese intellectuals who defend uh, Chinese policy in places like, say, Xinjiang or Tibet would adopt pretty much the same uh, justification um, for their country's behavior. This isn't to say that everyone's acting in an identical manner, but rather the intellectual support is there. Now, here is, a, uh, here is public opinion 
by Ian McAllister on in Australia towards defense and security. This is why today there is consistent and overwhelming support for the ANZUS alliance. It doesn't make sense to say that Australia has actually suffered. Yes, there are things we are being held back in a certain way. We can't diversify. We can't complexify um, the economy. Uh, we can't control certain things. Uh, and we do participate in expeditionary wars to uphold the overall American system, American-led system. Uh, but the public does have support for ANZUS. And any changes, McAllister says, are evident only in their intensity, not their direction. And for most Australians, ANZUS remains central. So those who want to argue about uh, the topic of, of this particular uh, forum have a lot of work to do, and they have to come up with real reasons um, as to why uh, Australia should break away if indeed it should. My goal here is simply to lay it out uh, and to inform rather than to persuade. With that in mind, I want to look at one of the uh, most interesting uh, PhD theses uh, over the last 10 years uh, by Dr. Caroline Yarnell. Uh, it's called, Is the Australian Public Rational on Foreign Policy Issues? I'm going to explain what she means by the term rational in, in the next slide. But if you look at the, the importance of ANZUS, I've uh, copied from, uh, from that PhD thesis. Um, I was the beneficiary of, of her generosity. She gave me a copy of her thesis. Uh, it doesn't drop below 80%. I mean, it's almost 80%. There's a huge, there is huge support for ANZUS. Part of the reason for this is that the last time Australian forces uh, faced an enemy uh, in a high intensity conflict was in the Korean War in the 1950s. The last Australian to be killed by enemy air power uh, was in 1943 in Salamawa in the New Guinea campaign. Uh, there haven't been a steady stream of of casualties against a credible adversary that can defend itself. And as a result, uh, participation, participation in uh, an American-led uh, uh, expeditionary war uh, has not actually caused that much of a cost compared to some of the benefits that are gained uh, by the wealth extraction from uh, the rest of the world. Uh, what Dr. Yarnell finds in her thesis is that Australian public opinion on foreign policy issues is durable over time, it is not set in stone. It is, in fact, responsive to triggers such as changes in the environment, uh, major events, and so on. And it is consistent and coherent, and it shows a degree of structure and discernment. Uh, it's, uh, the, the thesis has not been uh, summarized or published in, a, uh, in, a, in an easily accessible form uh, to the average reader, uh, but the, the value of this is that it shows that the Australian public is open to being influenced uh, by arguments, but more importantly, by events uh, on foreign policy issues. Here's another example from the, the, the Lowy Institute's opinion poll, that even, there's a slight majority that favors uh, stronger relations with the United States, even if it might harm relations with China. Now that's 2019. Anyone who is interested in trying to convince the Australian public cannot somehow dismiss all these polls as simply based on propaganda or whatnot. This is the terrain on which any argument has to be made. These polls have to be studied and understood and analyzed. 
there is a change in in the answer to a certain question from 2013 to 2020 that we should act to support U.S. military action in Asia, for example, in a conflict between China and Taiwan. The proportion of strongly disagree and somewhat disagree is, uh, uh, let's say, about 60% to 63%, but it's basically stable. It remains to be seen what happens as a result of um, further developments uh, in the defense and foreign affairs space. The importance of Australia's relationship with the United States versus that with China uh, was starting to get equalized around 2016, but then the divergence has now changed. And that the public is not, they might have, there might be information poor, but they are responding to coherent, they are responding coherently and consistently to triggers in the environment. Here's one. And this is the, way, the basis on which uh, any campaign about granting asylum to Hong Kong uh, people or fighting in the South China Sea will be defended. Uh, the, the public was asked in this poll, uh, the black line is, uh, the black bar is 2020, of course, that if there's a clash between our economic interests and our democratic values, whatever that means, what's more important? And now our democratic values are believed to be more important uh, than our economic interests. Although there has been a change, it still, it still means that the public is open to being convinced by a barrage of media commentary, government commentary, uh, statements by ministers and so on, that we have to defend uh, democracy or a free and open trading environment in the South China Sea, and we can't allow an authoritarian state like China to uh, to dictate our economic interests. That point was made quite repeatedly by the prime minister, and you can expect that value, uh, that opinion poll question about values versus interests, to respond coherently um, and in a predictable manner as a result of uh, the major uh, communications that are coming out of the government and uh, the media. Well, if there is to be any kind of cost about of Australian imperialism, so far the cost has not been borne by society as a whole, uh, at least about the war. There have been uh, diggers who have come back uh, uh, broken, they've been killed in action, uh, wounded, um, but there hasn't really been a price for fighting, say, in Iraq or Afghanistan um, or anywhere else. Not for many years. But Australian sub-imperialism, one of the strategic level costs or features is you have to be deeply integrated into American warfighting machinery. Um, I'm going to pick up on two major installations, uh, the Joint Defense Facilities at Pine Gap and the uh, Northwest Cape. Uh, this is in, in the Exmouth, in the town of Exmouth, uh, the Harold Holt uh, Naval Communication Station. Uh, these are installations. Pine Gap is the ground control station for a chain of satellites, uh, which allow targeting. And it wraps Australia fully into the U.S. warfighting machinery. And uh, the, the Naval Communication Station at Northwest Cape um, allows the United States to send firing messages to its hunter-killer submarines at the start of any conflict, uh, allowing them to target Chinese submarines 
without needing to check or clear anything with Australia. And so what Australia says is our policy is this is occurring with full knowledge and concurrence. There are ministerial statements explaining what it means, that we have full knowledge and concurrence of the capacity in those uh, joint defense facilities. We're not approving every single operation that occurs, and that's not the role of, of that's not the meaning of full knowledge and concurrence. Rather, uh, these installations have a certain military capability, and we have full knowledge and concurrence of the capability rather than on um, a particular targeting of uh, some militant uh, in Yemen or anywhere else. We're not, we're not approving individual strikes, but rather the capacity to do that. That's what full knowledge and concurrence means. But we are, we are integrated fully as part of Australian sub-imperialism into the American warfighting machine. And to that end, I want to pick up on something that came up a few days ago. Uh, the one on the right, at least the right on my screen, is uh, our country's Defense and Strategic Update 2020. Uh, it was announced by the Defense and, and Minister and Foreign Minister and Prime Minister, sorry, uh, a few days ago. But it bears a striking resemblance to certain concepts in the Pentagon's Indo-Pacific Str Strategy Report uh, 12 months ago. It is a sub-imperial document that fits into the Pentagon's Indo-Pacific strategy. The Pentagon is quite explicit about labeling China as a revisionist power, which undermines the international system from within, militarizes the South China Sea, uh, employs non-military tools coercively, works in the gray zone, which is actions short of military uh, overt military uh, actions. Uh, and it conducts all these complex operations uh, in cyberspace, space, and electronic warfare. Defense update, the Australian defense update, is not quite so accusatory. It is much, it, does, it only mentions China nine times. Uh, and it doesn't use the term revisionist power. It refers mostly to the active pursuit and its strategic competition. And it talks about gray zone activities, but doesn't mention China. And it talks about militarization of the South China Sea, doesn't mention China in that. Um, and so it tries to not point the finger, but in fact, the concepts that it uses and the defense acquisitions that it envisages are designed to integrate the Australian Defense Force into any military action that will occur in the South China Sea. Uh, all the slides, oh, sorry, all the, all the sources of what I've said uh, are in that book. Now, here is what this, this is from Alfred McCoy's article in the Journal of Asian Studies. Uh, this is what the Chi South China Sea looks like. Uh, the size, by the way, is um, three and a half million square kilometers. That means it is um, the size of Western Australia and South Australia combined. That's, that's the size of the South China Sea. It has unique uh, acoustic features for submarines. Um, there's a you know, shallow continental shelf. It's not very deep. Um, but China is able to project force within the South China Sea. It's got anti-aircraft batteries um, that are tuned in to the radar installations uh, in the artificial islands it's, it's uh, been constructing. Um, and other countries such as the United States or Japan uh, or the Philippines, uh, when I say Japan, I mean the American fleet that's in Japan, 
or the Philippine or the American uh, uh, fleet that's in the Philippines or in Guam, um, or in fact the Australian, the Royal Australian Naval Base that's there in Darwin, it takes quite a while to get there. Uh, and so part of the defense acquisition is designed to increase the, the force projection power. It's, it's, it's set as, as defense, but in fact, it is power projection. And if you look at the, the South China Sea there, I'd like you to take a closer look at uh, the right-hand side of that slide uh, in Subic Bay in the Philippines. Uh, Subic Bay, uh, it's about the size of that is the size of the entire state of Singapore. It's a very large uh, base in Subic Bay, uh, uh, a U.S. military base. You've got to get on a helicopter to get from one side of the base to the other. Um, and if you're looking at, say, Japan, it's actually Sasebo, which is near Fukuoka on the southwestern side. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the whole point of uh, the uh, defense update is to join the United States and to fit into the Indo-Pacific a strategy report of 2019 in order to project force into those areas. A determined community campaign over five years won the ban on fracking and a moratorium on onshore gas drilling for Victoria. It was a great victory for grassroots people power, but now the Victorian government has decided to lift the moratorium on onshore drilling, even though its own report admits it won't bring down gas prices. Even worse, they want to open up the west coast of the state to offshore gas drilling. It's essential we stand up now and make it clear that the time for new fossil fuels is over. Join the campaign by checking the Friends of the Earth website at www.melbournefo.org.au slash gas. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. That's it for this week. Keep safe. I find doing some projects helps. But I must say, remember, if you think things are tough, someone else is probably in a worse position. So chin up. Until next week. Adios.
Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you yours. to all What's of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. Hi, my name's Kath. 3CR has been in my life for decades. Each week I listen to my favourite programs. However, it's in a time of crisis that I really appreciate how important 3CR is. Often, this is when thousands of people are on the streets pushing for change. In this time of COVID, no one is on the streets. 3CR is more important than ever, keeping all our communities connected and informed. 3CR is a remedy for social isolation in this time of physical distancing. Good on you, 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.